0: Uh, welcome back, uh, not to church, but to First Peter. So here we are, we're back. Um, I know it's uh, it's been a while uh, first week of June actually, so almost three months that we've been away from First Peter, but I trust you have notes. And maybe you've looked back uh, over them in preparation for uh, this very Lord's day to get back into our study and You might not have remembered where we were, so I have my work cut out to help you get back to that place, but I'll do my best to uh, keep it pointed and succinct and uh, where we need to be. Now we're in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and it probably wasn't the most ideal thing to actually start this new section and then just drop it, uh, which is what we did last time, but that's kind of how we do it. We just go verse by verse and, uh, and, and so forth. Now, that's the whole section. It's chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And it's an incredibly deep section. There is some unbelievably profound truth here. And I can promise and guarantee we're not really going to be able to really pull out all that is in here. But I'm going to do my best to at least give you the, uh, uh, the, the very high highlights of it uh, so that you could do your own study going deeper. Now, I say that. And actually, I don't know how many weeks we're going to take to... But we're going to be here for for a while. In fact, we're only covering really just a half a verse uh, this morning. And uh, so we're going to take our time going through this as we have actually 10 points to work through. And last time we worked through the first point. This morning, we'll work through the second point. So you can tell uh, if you do the math, we'll be here for just a a minute, you know. Uh, Now, some parts of Scripture for Christians has to do with what to do. And we, it's helpful, I don't know about you, but for me it's so helpful. Sometimes for me, it's helpful for somebody to just tell me, hey, just tell me what to do, right? Just point me in the right direction. Help me to know how I should, you know, take the next step. Where I should take that next step and so forth. Commands. You know, the do this and the don't do that sometimes can be very helpful. Helpful. And as it relates to salvation, some parts just explain it. Some are invitations to it. Our section that we have here has to do with understanding just what we Christians have when we talk about our salvation. Now the analogy that we used last time was a diamond. Peter places Jesus Christ like a diamond on the black velvet. And at every turn, you can just see the sparkle, the, the amazing depth, the brilliance of this cut of this diamond. You see it there, and it shows all the angles of beauty. And in a sense, coming to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, that's what this is as we are going to take it and just kind of rotate it around to be able to show you all the many facets that are here as it relates to the privileges that we have as Christians. That's what we're talking about. All that we have in Christ. Some places of the Bible talk about what we should do. Other places talk about what we have. This is one that speaks more to what we have. Now, when God saves a sinner, he gives him Christ, all of Christ, not just parts of him, not just some of him. And Jesus is not like, uh, you know, uh, what is that geocache or whatever that is, where you go around looking, you know, all right, have I found it? See, you know, uh, oh, it's there in the desert or whatever. He's not. Uh, you don't need a, a fancy GPS to find him. He is in you, if you are in him. John fourteen twenty, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Colossians one twenty seven. This mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 2:20 it is no longer I who live but Christ lives where in me and when you have Christ you have all of him not just some of him see now why do i say that because that puts you in an advantage if you have Christ Jesus who is not only your Savior, not only the one who has purchased your salvation, but the creator of all things. Think about that. The creator of all things. <laughs> Let me help you think about that. You know, you'd be at the Grand Canyon and maybe you're with somebody. You say, they say, this is wonderful. Look at this Grand Canyon. It's amazing. Look at this. is just amazing creation and how all this is. Yeah, you know, I know that. And you know what? The creator of all of this, he's in me. Somebody might probably look at you like, well, that's bizarre. You're weird, you know. But that's true if you're a Christian. In other words, you think that's amazing. How about the one who made that? He's in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's what we call a serious spiritual advantage now, talking about, we're talking about here the privileges of being a Christian. You get saved and you get privileges. If you're the king's son or daughter, you have privileges, right? I mean, you get, you get to go to places you, that maybe other people don't get to go to, and you don't have to spend the money that they have to spend. You have the privileges. Galatians 4, we get saved. And did you know it says that we become sons and daughters? Sons and daughters of God, see? How about what we studied last week in flock, John 1. Do you remember this? Verse 12, as many as received him, to to them he gave the right to become children of God. That's incredible. And Jesus is the king of the world, the king of the universe. And so you become his child, and you know, you get certain privileges. That's amazing stuff. And by the way, that's First Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Now, oftentimes when we talk about Christian living, we like to talk about what we do. You know, service. What is our duty? We like to talk about action. And I understand, I'm, I'm kind of that, a bit of that kind of a person too. I, I, I like staying at that level. I actually am not one of those, even though you might catch me in this, um, I'm actually not one of those that likes to sit around and do the philosophical debates. That's not my favorite thing, all right? Um, More of a favorite thing would be, just tell me what I need to do. What's the thing? But Christian living also has to do with privilege. And when we talk about privilege, we're talking about who we are, and we're talking about what we have what we have we tend to think this way the obedience and the service is for now the privileges of being a Christian are for later, are for heaven you think that in heaven I'll have perfection, you know in heaven I'll have that wisdom, I'll have that power, I'll have that joy, and that love, and all the blessings. And the thinking is in heaven, there is all blessing and no work and no action. But I want you to understand something that's actually not true. There will be service all over the place in heaven too. So you don't just stop serving here or be only serve here and then stop serving up there where you can say, oh good, finally I can take a break. No, it's just that your service will be without the effort, right? Or at least the effort won't be so tiresome. You'll just be saying, hey, can we do that again? I'm ready. But listen, for those of us that maybe think of blessing and privilege being for later, I want you to know there's blessing and privilege for now. And we need to get connected with that. And it's not like so many of the other churches that are, oh, you know, God has a blessing for you. What they mean is maybe a house or a car or something like that. That is so shallow, by the way. The kind of blessings and privileges we're talking about are much deeper than that. That's Peter's message. Now, the reason we have to talk like this is because back in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter begins to talk about the doing part of Christian living. And he gives four commands. And when we get to our section, there's a fifth command. that actually shouldn't be understood as a command. And I'm going to show you that here in a moment. You know, he tells us things like already gird your minds, right? Uh, Get them tucked. Why? So that secondly, you could be holy. And he's already told us that. That's an action thing, right? Be holy. So that you could thirdly, verse 17, conduct yourself in fear, that is, in honor, so that you might uh, be honorable, right? What is the mark of our salvation? Chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, love for others. That's another action. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, love for God is seen in love for God's word, see? And so there he says, you and I should crave the word. All of that is our duty. It's all what we do. And then Peter says, do all of that because we have certain privileges. We have a spiritual advantage that no unbeliever knows anything about. The unbeliever has no idea of this. You see, how do we know that we're talking about our privileges after becoming a Christian? Let me show you. Look at verse 4. And here's the key phrase. And coming to Him. That is our salvation in direction. Write that down somewhere or remember it. That is our salvation in direction. I say that because the language itself conveys that in the part with the participle coming to him not not that you have come to him but coming to him we've come and we still keep coming you see that's the idea this is our salvation in motion you came to Christ and you still come to him in other words that is the direction of your life coming to him Moving to Him. Matthew 4, John chapter 1, Jesus said, Follow me. Follow me. How do you know you're a leader? Because people are what? Following you. you look. you look behind, you don't have anybody following you. You're not a leader, okay? Follow me. And what he meant was that salvation was coming to that understanding in life that it is a constant following him, going his direction. You come to him not just to get salvation, but to enjoy the privileges of that salvation in constant movements. And that's the idea. When you and I come to him for salvation, we get these privileges. And we begin to live in them. And so in a sense, this is really the thing that uh, you want to place next to every action that we're called to do. Place the privileges that go right with them. Now follow this. Verse 4 is really Peter introducing this whole thinking on our Christian privileges, our great spiritual advantage. When you come to Jesus Christ for salvation, verse 4, you are coming, look what it says, to him as a living stone. Now that's a weird thing to say. And in fact, did you realize that really in the, all of the New Testament, it doesn't really talk about Jesus a whole lot this way? It's, uh, it's a very unusual way to talk about. It, uh, it, it does, the Bible does talk about him being a rock, it talks about him being living water. But it doesn't talk about him being the living stone. It's a very unusual thing. When you think of a stone, you think of something that is uh, that has no life in it. You think of something that is hard and uh, can be used as an instrument, but not a living stone. It doesn't have life. Stones don't have life in it. Maybe they do if you're, you know... If you're if you're talking about a C.S. Lewis book or something or, or uh, you know, Lord of the Rings or something, The Hobbit stones that maybe could come alive, but in real life stones don't live. And so this is a strange statement. Is I mean, we can work through it. though. I mean, is Jesus a stone? Is he a rock? Yes, he's the rock, right? I mean. And he tried to show, we tried to show you that last time in the Old Testament, the Messiah was connected to this this stone to come. Psalm 118 says, uh, a stone of stumbling, a rock of of offense. And Ezekiel 36, and even Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, it says he's the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Many other passages in the Old Testament that refer to him as... The stone, the Messiah is a stone. The Lord's stone. But notice, a living stone. And I would have you understand this. The reason why this is a very important analogy is because as a stone doesn't have life, this one has life. And his point is, something gave it life. Something that should be lifeless has life. And that tells us he's, he's really thinking of the resurrection here. Dead but alive. The stone tells us he is strong. He is a foundation. Our foundation. Living tells us this is a living thing. A living foundation. Psalm 18, not just any stone, but the cornerstone. That's the main stone that aligns the other stones. If you're building a house, especially back then, the way they built it, you place that cornerstone right there so that you could align all the other angles. And that's what Christ is. He's the alignment for everything. Listen, He's the alignment for our life, isn't He? See, man, which, you, you, maybe you think to yourself, what, what should our life look like? Well, make sure it's aligned by Christ. Look at how he lived. Look at the words that he says and align yourself accordingly, right? So Jesus is that stone, the main stone that aligns all other stones in making a building. I agree with John MacArthur when he says, So we come to him who is the Messiah, the living stone, the cornerstone, and the great spiritual kingdom that is God's, that is, that God is building. End quote. That God is building. So God takes this cornerstone, Jesus, and he begins to build his building with all these other stones. And this cornerstone is a living stone. There are so many directions that we could take this. We could talk about strength. We could talk about stability. We could talk about solidarity. We can talk about unbending truth. We can talk about being firm and immovable and your doctrine, being sound. Notice another thing, verse 4, rejected by men. That's always been the story since Jesus came, right? Men, by and large, reject him. And before salvation, for us, we rejected him too. We should never forget that. But notice in verse 4. Now we might have rejected him, but notice in verse 4, that doesn't matter because Jesus is choice and precious in the sight of God. You see how, see he put together with that? He might be rejected by men, but for God the Father, that doesn't matter because he's choice and precious in his sign God has chosen him so it doesn't matter that men have rejected him we have such a wrong view of the Messiah we think that he stands at the door with his arms kind of open going "Oh, who? who or, or even raised please pick me please pick me to all the people who have rejected him that is the wrong picture He is sovereign in his plan, going and moving throughout. John 3 says, the wind blows where it wishes. And he finds those ones who have heard the gospel. And he reaches and saves the ones whom he will save. Rejected by men, but precious in sight, in the sight of the Father. Choice. Choice. Choice and precious. Choice. You might not like that word when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to, uh, you know, talking about doctrine, election. But you know who loves it? The Lord loves that word. He loves it. Loves that word so much he attached it to his son. Choice. Choice. God has chosen him, so it doesn't matter that men have rejected him. Have you ever thought about that with Jesus, that God has accepted Jesus? God the Father has accepted God the Son. You say, why make a big deal about that? Because Isaiah 53, when Jesus went to the cross, it says he was smitten of God and afflicted. He was crushed by the Father. And verse 10 tells us it pleased the Father to do so. In other words, the Father rejected Him. So not only rejected by men, but by the Father too. But then the difference is now the Father calls Him choice and precious. Why? Because He accepted the death of Jesus on the cross as payment for our sins. And we can say, just like we just sang, it is finished. He raised Him up to become a living stone. So when we say he's a living stone, what we mean is God has accepted his death, his substitute death as payment for you and I and as the thing that allows for you and I to go to the Father. No wonder Jesus could tell that poor adulterous woman at the well, I am the living water who gives you a drink that will never end. Because even though he would die, yet he would live. I am the living water and I will always be the living water. So what are these privileges that we have as Christians that give us spiritual advantage? Let's take a look at the first one again and remind ourselves. First one, union with Christ. Look at verse 5. You also... As living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. There are two ways we see this union. Notice Jesus is the living stone. We believers are living stones. Notice you also. Whoa. In the same way as Jesus. That tells us something. In in, in some way, we are now the same as Jesus. You say how? In nature. There is a nature now that is connected to His nature. Second Corinthians five seventeen: If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. In other words, he has a new nature. Second Peter one four: We are partakers of the divine nature. Jesus. Who's divine nature? Jesus. He's a living stone. We are living stones. Oh, you could be there all day, couldn't you? And wondering how can that be? If you're not really connected at all to your sins, you wouldn't maybe think that. But boy, you start thinking about how you're a sinner and, and it says he's a living stone and you're a living stone. You should marvel and say, how could that be? Not Not me. Oh, yes, if you're in him, yes, you are. Incredible forgiveness. You say, well, for how long? Well, how long will Jesus be a living stone? I mean, look at that. He likens what we have to what he has. There is no way a person can come away with that thought and think, well, as long as you keep your salvation, but you might lose it. Are you kidding me? He says... He's a living stone and we're living stones. And so as long as he's a living stone, we're living stones. Do you understand that? Well, how long will Jesus be a living stone? Stones have no life, but his, his one does and he has resurrection life forever. And so the same with us. Now, what that teaches is union with him. Union with Christ. But there's a second thing here that we are being built up as a spiritual house and that's also connected to union. What does that mean? What house? Temple, the temple. The house of God. Now what, what did God do in that house? Well, he dwelt there, right? We can, you can read about that. First Kings 8, You, know, the glory of the Lord dwelling there. He caused his presence to be there. To be where now? What are we talking about in that house? What are we talking about? He causes presence to be there. That's us. And you remember we showed you that from 1 Corinthians 3, the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 17 through 19, that we, the church, all these collection of these living stones that make up this one amazing edifice that's living. First Corinthians three calls us the building, and that's what he has in mind. Now what's all that imply? That there is a vital connection. Union means that he is working in us, through us, with us, serving through us, speaking through us. It's just an incredible privilege. And that brings us to the second privilege that gives us the spiritual advantage. Number two, access access to God we have access to God look at verse 5 a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ now I'm calling this privilege access to God because this verse basically makes the point that all believers that when they are saved are made priests for God. I grew up a Roman Catholic and when I came across this verse, it rocked my world. Uh, Are you saying that I'm a priest? Yep. That's what it's saying. All right. So I went to my priest and said, I no longer need your services. I have a priest. I am a priest. The Lord says I am. So don't need you. In fact, I serve the great faithful high priest. I really don't need you. I have all I need in Christ. We are given a priesthood. That's also what it says here. Given a priesthood. Now listen, an unbeliever has no access to God. So many try to pray to him. You know, they say things like, uh, just send one up. Or they, even if someone has some extra need, you know, maybe a person is ill or hurt severely. And I've seen this. Sending prayers to you. And I think, to them? Are you praying? It's so confusing. Are you praying to them? I hope not. Because I think they need you to pray to the Lord who could help them. You're saying you're praying, you're sending prayers to them. It's the weirdest thing. Sending prayers your way. Now listen, talk like that only tells us you don't have access to God. If you did, you wouldn't talk like that. The Bible says that a person who is not a Christian, stands at a distance from God. Isaiah 59, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. There's distance, right? That's the relationship between the unbeliever and God. Somebody very close to me many, many, many years ago called me up. Mike, I need to meet with you. Sure, let's meet. So we got together. I had shared the gospel with this person many years before that. And this person said, you know, when I pray, I feel like there is, like I'm just sending words to the ceiling. And there's this great distance, void in my heart and life. I said to this person, there is. Isaiah 59. It's because you are separate from God. You are. You don't know Him. But you can. You can know Him. And we went through the Gospel. Now because I had access to God, I could tell this person how to get access to God. See? No wonder the guy in Luke 18 was standing some distance away, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, and he was beating his breast. I mean, he understood that's the position of the unbeliever. Far away from God, no access, not allowed in. Worse, dangerous to go in. For the unbeliever, there's always a sign in front of heaven. You know what that sign is? You you might think, and this is probably the this is probably bad evangelism if this is how we if you and I think this way. And I probably there's a lot to think. You're welcome. All are welcome. But the truth of the matter is, the sign actually that stands before heaven is not all are welcome. The sign that is in front of heaven is danger. Keep out. You see? Well, that's not very inviting. No, it's it's not. But it's like what the Lord did with Adam and Eve when he put the angel with the sword. Okay, if you're going to give somebody a sword and protect it, you're wanting them to stay out. You can't go back into Eden. Why? Because it's dangerous for you to go back in there. Why? Because the tree of life is in there. Shouldn't I go into the tree of life? That sounds like a good tree. No, you're in sin. If you go and you eat from the tree of life, you'll forever live in your sin. You understand that? Now the reason why it says danger keep out is because you'll die if you go in there with your sins. See, you'll stain up heaven. You're going to be that guy. And heaven is perfect. So why would God allow you and your sins into perfection there in heaven? But listen, for the Christian, we have admission, don't we? We have access. What's our access point? Jesus Christ, see? in all that he has done for us. Now, there is a picture of the Old Testament that we that we get that really we need to remember at all times. And in fact, it was such a clear picture of this danger before God that the writer in Hebrews 12 makes his point from it. And it is found in Exodus 19. God says to Moses, as the Israelites were coming to Mount Sinai to meet, meet, meet God, Tell the people not to get too close. That's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, they're coming to see you. Don't you want them to get close? Don't you want them to go up the hill? Up the mountain? I mean, you mean, you know... No, He doesn't. Don't you like people? Yes. But He's holy. And He has to always be holy. And holy ho- holiness... Pure holiness cannot compromise itself with sin. Tell the people not to get too close. He said this three times, even to the priests. In other words, God is dangerous, keep your distance. This is a holy place. This is the presence of the Lord. See, I mean, so not even the Israelites as God's people were given access to God. Nobody has it. But you know who gets access to God now? Believers do. Christians. The temple veil separating all people from God has been torn in two when Jesus died on the cross, right? So there's access. Hebrews says, when you come with the blood of Christ. Now, will you notice the key image in this point in verse 5? Priests or priesthood. Look again here. A spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To make spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, this is where we get the idea that all Christians are priests. We all have a priesthood, the believer priest, right? And I'll tell you, beloved, All of us could nod our head, right? Go, but believer-priest, yes, that's great. Thank you for telling me that. And then you go tell your friend, did you know I'm a believer-priest? And they say to you, well, what does that mean? And you go, I don't know, but that's what I am. Amen? Amen. All right, here we go. Hebrews 4. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. I'm a priest as a Christian, but what does all that mean? What does it mean? Does it just mean that you can enter in and that's good and that's and that's all there is? I think for most of us, we haven't the slightest idea of what it means to be a priest. But we're excited about it, you know? Well, you got to understand then a few things about the Old Testament priests. That's our analogy here. Now again, our priesthood is nothing like the, the one from the Old Testament in a sense. I mean, the message was clear all over the place. Keep out. Don't get too close. Submission is limited. Follow the rules. Be clean. Watch yourself. Stay at a distance. Eat the right food. Drink the right drink. Make the offerings the right way. Wear the right clothes. And so forth. There is this history of people trying to take the role of priests when they weren't priests. I mean, who could forget poor Uzzah, Right? I say poor it, but he, he disobeyed the Lord in rebellion. Or how about King Uzziah who tried to take control and make the offerings the Lord said, hey, you can't do that, and he gave him leprosy. Or how about Saul in 1 Samuel 15, don't do it. But you get to the New Testament, and you find out that Christian has been given a priesthood from the Lord Jesus, and that means nothing to you and me unless we understand what it means to be a priest, so that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time is understand what does it mean to be a priest. And I'll tell you, beloved, as we go through this, you're going to see the tie and it's really going to be amazing. And we'll tie it to our privilege. Now you think about the priest and he made sacrifices, right? We know that. Is that what we're supposed to do? <laughs> You say, well, Romans 12, Hebrews 13, spiritual sacrifices. But I'll tell you this, if you don't understand the picture from the Old Testament, you're not going to get the command in the new. Okay? And to get this, I'm going to point you to a handful of passages. We're going to look at Exodus 28. We're going to look at Leviticus 8 through 10. And we're going to look at Malachi 2. And obviously... uh, a more shorter way <laughs> all right so let's start by turning to exodus chapter 28 what do you know about the priest that is the question right so let's ask we're gonna we're gonna take away some characteristics of the old testament priests and draw some principles from them for us But let's ask the question there in your notes, what does it mean to be a priest? I mean, if we have a priesthood, what was that? Ten guidelines for you. Let's look at the first one, chosen by God. The priest was chosen by God. That's the first thing that stands out. And you can see that there in Exodus 28. Chapters 28 and 29 of Exodus tell us about the office of a priest. And the first thing to learn about the Old Testament priest is that he was chosen by God. Verse 1, Bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him. Now this is Israel just getting started with herself structurally. Bring near and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. Now, the first thing to see here is that there were no applications for this thing, okay? No volunteers. You say, well, but maybe that's just kind of how they did it. No, later on, remember, they say, hey, any volunteers for bringing stuff for the temple, gold and all that kind of stuff? They didn't make them do that. Here, though, he says, nope, there are people that are chosen by God to do this. This is God choosing whom He wants to be priests. And so the first thing is that the priests were chosen by God. Now you could call this an elect privilege. An elect privilege. You know what? Our priesthood is like that too. Isn't it? Second Timothy 1 verse 9. Who has saved us and called us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So there you go again, banging the drum of election. Listen, I didn't write those words. He did. Or how about Second Timothy 2, verse 10? For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Jesus said in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, as you're thinking about that, we need to learn something about God choosing His priests. God chooses his priests from the tribe of Levi. You say, who's Levi? Well, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And remember the 12 sons of Jacob, we got the 12 tribes from them. And so this is a tribe, Levi. See, what was Levi like? I want you to listen to this from Genesis 49 and mark this verse 5. This will give you an insight into the, the tribe that, from the tribe of Levi that Jesus or that the Lord God chose his priests from this tribe. This is Jacob's last words about his sons. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. He says that about Levi. Let me summarize here. What was Levi like? Violent. Not a guy you should get close to, self-willed, angry, cursed by God, fierce, filled with wrath, cruel. And God said Levi's future will be a scattered one. God chose him. God chose from that. Huh. Now listen. God chose people from that tribe to be His priests. He chose violent men, self-willed men, no good rotten men. Why? God chose people from a tribe known for all of that stuff. And, And By the way, doesn't it say that this is a cursed tribe? Yeah. He chose a bunch of sinners. You say, why did God do that? You ready for the answer? Because he always does. It's what he did in choosing you and me. I mean, we would never do that because we don't have the power to transform, but God does. If it's you and I, we would stand up in our self righteousness and go, oh, not that guy. Oh, no. Don't even let him in the door. We would never do that, but God does. I mean, you get to the New Testament, by the way, there, there it is again. Remember Peter in Luke 5? Jesus chose him, and Peter said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. As though, you know, Jesus didn't know that. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men instead of fish. Don't worry. I have the power to change you, Peter. Instead of catching stinking fish, you'll be catching stinking men. All right? It's just going to be the way it is because you're one of those. Later in that same chapter, Jesus goes to Levi, the tax collector. Also called Matthew, and he says, follow me, and he did, and Jesus chose him, and then he said this in verse 33, right after choosing him, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm not going and finding righteous people. I'm looking for the sinners. Is that you? Jesus chooses bad guys. And bad girls. People that realize that they're sinners. Romans four five. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Those are the kind God chooses to make his priests. See. Hebrews seven twenty eight for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Men with sins. You know why? Because there aren't any other kind. Beloved, I'm so thankful that this is how God chooses. He chooses weak people. He chooses the ungodly, the ignorant. First Corinthians one twenty-six: For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak to shame things which are strong. The base of the world, the despised God has chosen and so forth. Why? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 31, let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. Why? Because he chooses you and that he makes you just what he wants you to be. See? So, that's why God did it that way, to make you a boaster in him. So that's the first thing we learn about priests. Chosen by God, even though sinful, even though violent and cruel and prideful and even greedy like Levi the tax collector. Number two, second, what you could call characteristic of a priest, cleansed by God from sin. Cleansed by God from sin. What was an Old Testament priest like? Chosen by God, but second, cleansed by God from sin. Go to Leviticus 8 to see this one. Before a priest could do his priestly work, making offerings and serving the temple, he had to to get cleansed. So look at verse 6 here of Leviticus 8. Then Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and wash them with water. Now what was that all about? Some type of ceremonial washing, right? Well, it was an outward symbol of an inward need for a soul. An outward symbol of the inward need, right? What? Cleansing of sin. And then you have these garments that he had to put on and the breast piece with the ear of Thumum and these stones that somehow were connected for them that determined God's will and so forth. And the holy crown and then in verse 10, the anointing oil and all that. And then here in Leviticus 8, he gives us a bunch of detail on you know, you have the bull for the sin offering and, uh, and you had a ram and they put blood on the right ear and on the right hand and the big toe, of the right foot. Have you ever wondered about that? What is that all about? That's strange. Not so strange when you really think about it. First of all, it's on the right side. Why? That's the, that's the side of strength for most people. But I believe what he's is saying is atonement for sin so that you can hear God speak through His Word, okay, so that you could serve God through your hands and so that you could walk with God with your feet. So that you're cleansed to be able to do those things. Cleansed so that you can have service and hear the Word and feet to walk with God. Listen, every priest had to have that. Now, there's not a tough connection to make here. You cannot be God's priest without it. And you look at the New Testament, and that's true of us, right? I mean, what happened at salvation? Cleansed from sins. Sins washed away. John thirteen eight. Jesus told Peter... If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And what's interesting is later in verse 10, Jesus explains this to Peter. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And his point, when God saves you, he bathes you in the forgiveness of, of the blood of Christ. And after that, you only need the spiritual foot washing to keep you clean in your walk. See. But the point of it is the constant need of being clean. And that was true of, of the priests. How about Titus 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Just like the priests, but this kind is of spiritual. Later on in chapter 3, talking about salvation, he says this in verse 5, Titus three five. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Wash in His blood. So that's necessary for God's priests. Number three, a priest was clothed by God for service. Clothed by God for service. Have you ever noticed that they, they wore strange stuff? Back to Exodus chapter 28, verse 2. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you had all the pieces and the color and, and, and and its particularities and lots of beauty, lots of structure. And then you have verse 42, which is fascinating. You shall make for them linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins... Even to the thighs. Now, what is that? Well, I got to tell you, that's to cover the organs. Okay, cover the sensitive spot. It is actually, it literally is. That's where. why it says bare flesh. In other words, your clothing is not just for beauty, but it has a practical deal. It conveys modesty, conveys uh, a sense of propriety, uh, a purity. Leviticus 8, 7, same thing, all the pieces of clothing with purpose and so forth. So what's the takeaway here? All other garments and pieces were were, were put together to make this statement. We dress for identification and purity. We identify as those that belong to the Lord and we're pure for Him. We dress to make a statement of separation. By the way, nobody dressed like them. They were different. Nobody in Israel was to dress like them. They were called to separateness, to holiness. They were clothed in such a way that it was clear they belonged to another. They belonged to God. They were representing Him. They looked different. So everyone could know that they belonged to God. As the Lord's priests, we have a clothing. In Philippians 3, Romans 4 tells us it's the very righteousness of Christ is our clothing. It's the statement to all that we are separated to God. It is our identity. We identify with Him. We're clothed with that righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ became to us righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, same thing, right? Why? So that we might serve him. See? And There's lots of implications in all of that, but um, I think you kind of get the sense of it. Let me give you a fourth one. Consecrated by God with power. The priest, every priest in the Old Testament was anointed. He was consecrated by God. And the statement of that consecration or that anointing was power through the Spirit. Leviticus 8.12 Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And then at verse 30, so Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron his garments, his sons and the garments of his sons with him. What is this? It's a symbol, right? It symbolizes God's power was with the priests. That's the idea. God's very presence was with the priests. That's the idea. I mean that's why men like Ahab and First Kings wanted to hear from the priests because God's presence was with them. And you'll notice there was always respect for the priests because they saw them as people that came with God's presence. For them for so many people in Israel it was very superstitious. But there is a connection with that. The Lord did want them to respect and honor and revere him by revering his priests. You read Ezekiel thirty-six about the new covenant. It is clear we are anointed by the Spirit out salvation. Did you know that? He comes to us and in us and keeps us and makes the very presence of God at home in us. John fourteen says that. In fact, mark these two verses down. 1 John chapter two, verse twenty. And twenty-seven, which speaks of that anointing, and it's not like you think. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, you know, um, hand on the head, some type of maybe beam of light that comes on you, and, and you're like get changed into something else. I don't know. That's not it. The anointing that First John two twenty and verse twenty-seven speaks of is the Spirit who abides in us. The Holy Spirit so when did that start happening at salvation and the Holy Spirit in making his home and presence in you and dwelling in you, Romans eight says he doesn't come and go in you. he is in you as a pledge second Corinthians one ephesians one fourteen. so when we talk about having a priest what we mean is that we are chosen by God, cleansed by God because we washed our sins away, clothed by God for service and then consecrated by God with power through the Holy Spirit. And that's just incredible. But that's not all. Number five, we're coached by God in soundness. See, what's this point? Every priest was prepared to do his work. There was a preparation, a time of coaching, if you will. Leviticus 8.33, You shall not go outside the doorway of the tent of meeting for seven days until the day that the period of your ordination is fulfilled, for he will ordain you through seven days. Now, the point is is that he didn't get to serve immediately there had to be some preparation for it. See, how does that relate to us as priests? Before there can be service, there is preparation of heart. And you can see this all over the place. For example, 1 Timothy 3, you'll notice he says not to make an elder, one who's a novice, an elder, right? Why? You ever wonder that? See how much, how much time of preparation it doesn't say, but the goal is spiritual maturity. And even Paul, you read about in Galatians one, he went to Arabia to be taught by Jesus for some some period of time. Some some scholars think it could have even been as much as fourteen years of preparation. Now, there's not a time element that we can be precise with, but the aim is spiritual maturity, and there's a principle here. God's priests are prepared for the work. And it is not self proclamation, self kind of, you know, appointing. There's preparation working through the heart and into the mind. And no wonder James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, you know, let not many of you become teachers for we incur a stricter judgment. Don't be too quick to be, to want to be a teacher. Preparation before practice. Student before service. Let me give you the last few here. Number six. Commenced for obedience. Leviticus 9 is the ordination. and You get to Leviticus 10. And I'm going to give you the super short version. Remember Leviticus 10 where they've all been ordained. yea, And they come together and you have Nadab and Abihu and they go in and it says to do what they were supposed to do as priests and it says they offered up strange fire and the Lord took their life. In fact, Fire came and consumed them. What a tragic thing, moment for Aaron, their dad, to see this. See, what was the strange fire that they offered? We don't know. But the Lord did. And that's what's important. And what do we take away from that? The priest was called to obedience. He was called to a higher standard than the world. We can't be like the world. Our standard is higher. The priest's call is obedience to God. That's our call as believers. That's 1 Peter 1.14. The church today gets this confused. It thinks that when we call people to obey the Lord, that we are being legalistic. We, listen, we actually represent the Lord when we do that. When we obey Him, we are never more like Him. Especially when it is it is an obedience from the heart. Let me give you number seven. The priest was committed to the Word of God. He had a high view of the Word of God. In Malachi chapter 2, he makes this point. He says, in verses 1 through 5, he says, there's so many of these priests that are just not honoring me, acting like the true priests, like they need to be. And so then he gives them a list of what true priests are like. Verse 6, true instruction is to be in his mouth and unrighteousness not found on his lips. A true Levite was one that had true instruction in his mouth, God's word in him. And so he's committed to the word of God, and that's the mark of God's priests in the New Testament. That's what makes us stand out as priests. The priests took God's word seriously. Number eight, you could call this clarity from his walk with God. Malachi 2 6, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. An Old Testament priest had a clear walk with God. As priests, we have a clear walk with God in intimacy and in love and joy, in serving him and prayer. Number nine, the Old Testament priests. Had consequence with sinners. So what do you mean by that? Impact. There was there was impact with the sinners. Malachi 2 6, and he turned many back from iniquity. In other words, the mark of a priest is as salt and light. Salt and light with sinners. He was the godly influence. They were to have impact on unbelievers. And so are we. And then number 10, he was a courier for God. A courier. What do you mean by that? Messenger. A courier travels in haste with urgent news. And so Malachi 2 verse 7, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priest is. That's why we don't just say, well, go see the pastor because he has the message for you. Listen, every priest is a messenger for the Lord with urgent news. What news is that? The gospel, Romans 1 16. Now, last thing I want to point out to you, and this is where we're going to start next week. Romans twelve one. No wonder Paul could say this, and maybe you'll look at this a little bit differently now. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What is he saying? Your priests act like it. That's what he's saying. Your priests go and act like it. And we talked about the privilege and the, what the priests were. Next Lord's Day, we'll, we'll, we'll touch a little bit on what they do. Um, and when we put it all together, you're going to understand what an incredible privilege this is. We're priests. If you know the Lord, you are a priest. And that is uh, it's pretty awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for doing that work through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you. Um, we can't take credit for it. We can't point to our own glory. We can't think to ourselves um, that that means we're special because of anything that we have done it's all you Lord and we love you I pray help us to get in touch with this priesthood that we have that it might not that it might be something that we understand it Lord in the way that you want us to help us to be faithful use us for your kingdom and Lord may it all be done out of a love for you Help. I pray for the, if there are any here that don't know you Father you would put it in their mind and heart to be turned to you and to cry out to you so that they can actually see that there is an entrance into heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.